If you're not communicating and enforcing your boundaries, if you're saying yes when you actually mean no, if you're not expressing the truth about how you feel, any of these three, you're not being authentic. In the presence of inauthenticity, usually there's a fear of being authentic, and that comes from wounds. Our behavior in life is important to not be fear-based. If I were to make a suggestion, whatever decision you make, make sure it's not fear-based. If it's fear-based, it's most likely not the right path for you. That's Sam Qureshi, and this is episode 244 of In The Moment with me, Alex Manzi. I'm a life coach, and this podcast is all about self-development and helping you to live a happier, more fulfilling life. And each week, we hear from some of the most inspirational people in the world to help inspire you to make a positive change in your life. And on this week's episode, I am joined by Sam Qureshi, who returns for the follow-up of our part one of this conversation that we had a few weeks ago to bring some more time and energy and value and depth to some of the topics that we spoke about just a few weeks ago on this podcast, but also to be able to answer some of the questions that you guys had based on the first episode. So what we've done is we gathered some questions from some of the people who sent them to us based on the first episode, and we've dived in a lot deeper on some of those topics. So during this episode, we speak about healing emotional wounds, the difference between suppression and expression of emotions, the difference between loneliness and being alone, and how to know that you're on the right path in life. So the aim of this podcast is to inspire. So if you like what you hear in this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and spread the love. But right now, let's jump straight in and hear from Sam. Hello, Sam, welcome back. Part two of our uh, very enlightening conversation from, from the first part. It was a fascinating conversation. It was. I really enjoyed it. It was. And I like that um, when we have these kinds of conversations, we don't really know where they're going to go. We just sort of like roll with the waves as the saying probably isn't that but you know what i mean right ride the waves is probably the way to put it um so on this this part we're going to do it a little bit differently because the end of part one um we asked for people who had listened to get in contact and send in any questions that they had based on the conversation and we also both put out a little shout on our um instagram stories with with questions so i've got a few questions that have come in which are kind of hopefully we'll get around to, you know, a few of them. Um, but just before we hit record, we were having an interesting conversation about focus and fidgeting. Yeah. Um, so I thought that might be a good place to start because it was, uh, we kind of, we cut it short to continue it here. So um, do you want to, do you want to explain a bit about what we were kind of discussing, I guess? Yeah. I mean, fidgeting is, is a powerful tool that people can use. Um, it's, it's basically repetitive movements. And if you're constantly repeating a movement uh, from a psychological perspective, what that does is it creates and suggests to the unconscious mind because it's a motor stimulation. It's using muscle. And that's how we communicate with the unconscious mind. Um, it suggests control through repetition. When you're constantly repeating something, you're doing something it creates that pattern. So the repetition creates a sense of control, which makes us feel safe, which is really the whole point. The second thing is when you keep repeating, it's something that you're repeating that makes you, that allows you to predict it. When we see patterns. So for example, one of the reasons why we feel so comfortable when we are um, on a beach, it just relaxes. There are many reasons. One of them is the pattern you are seeing is continuously unapologetically repeating itself over and over and over. 
it is the most, one of the most predictable patterns you can imagine. It just keeps happening over and over and over. And the reason why we relax when something keeps repeating is because we can predict it. Predicting the ability to predict is the ability to control. The ability to control allows us to feel safe. When we feel safe, we relax. This is honestly, this is psychological, mm-hmm. you know, on an unconscious level. So you look at something happening over and over. It becomes a lot easier for you to be comfortable there because it's not every time the waves come, they're not changing. And the thing about the repetition in the presence of evidence that you're safe because it never attacks you, whatever's happening is not moving towards you. You automatically reach a point where you're just completely relaxed, knowing that what's in front of you is not a threat. So imagine doing that for yourself. You are creating a pattern. You're not just in the presence of a pattern that repeats itself. You are so in control of the pattern that you are the one creating the pattern. So that amplifies that sense of safety in a way. Now, it's it's a bit deeper than that, but the idea is fidgeting is used to calm the person down. So we we automatically get into it and we don't know why it feels good, but it's really to relax and the way it does it by inducing the sense of safety through that pattern, through the predictability, through the sense of control. Mm-hmm. Now, there's if you want to look at it from a different angle, um, moving fast is haphazard. This is the opposite. We rush, we move very quickly, we get things up. I want to clean this desk very quickly, so I'm just going to quickly move things and organize them. That speed suggests the presence of a threat. That's why rushing creates a sense of urgency, and a sense of urgency may indicate the presence of an imminent threat without us even knowing. And so we start to feel a bit stressed. We start to panic simply because we are rushing. We live in a fast-paced world. If we were to add that to the mix, we're taught to be ADD. We're taught to, to focus, to fragment, to be, to have a fragmented focus. We're taught to try to kind of not to focus on one thing at a time, but also try to focus on more than one thing at a time, which doesn't really happen. It's not really possible for us to fully focus on something hundred percent. We're just, we're just single tasking very quickly rather than Um, multitasking. And so when you do that, what ends up happening is you're stressing yourself out because every time you switch from task to task, the micronutrients in the brain are being drained. It's, It's requiring more nutrients in order for it to function in that way. And if we keep one task, instead of switching every single time, every time you switch, you drain energy, mental energy. And so Imagine if you focus on one thing, you get that thing done, complete it, you move on to the next. We're not living in a world that allows us, or we're not living in a world that makes us believe that we have that permission. It, we, it's a permission that we give ourselves, and we're giving the world permission to take that right from us because of the conditioning that's happening on social media and on smartphones. And because of that, we keep rushing. And when you rush, you suggest the presence of a threat. We wonder why anxiety is skyrocketing. We wonder why depression is skyrocketing. There are a lot of reasons why smartphones and social media specifically is damaging people. But the induction or inducing the necessity of inducing or or kind of supporting that need to speed up 
is one of the major factors. Yeah. And that, and that's really powerful, isn't it? Because like a lot of the, the work that I guess you also do, but I do like with coaching is to test, to help people slow down <laughs> because yeah. we, we find, like you said, like when, when you're sped up or rushing, it's an indication that there's a, there's a threat and whether that threat is like running out of time or, you know, something that, that could feel more, um, imminent than that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how, when you do start to slow down and that you said you, you, you refrain from like having a singular focus that's going from this thing to that thing, to that thing, to that thing, to just singular focus on this one thing for, um, an allotted period of time and it doesn't have to mean like you have to sit there and put a timer on and but like just having that focus on on one thing for a period of time slows you down because you're i guess you're not going through that process of rushing right and what i find really interesting and, and where we kind of started this discussion off mic was about fidgeting because i was saying like when i'm recording like even as you were talking i've got this pen and I, i'm sort of just twiddling it between my fingers and not that I use it sort of consciously as a way to kind of stay focused, but it's like something that anchors me physically into the present, right? Through the conversation we're having, like I'm very attentive to what we're talking about, obviously, and the, and the time that we have for this. But I find that somehow I always find, even if I put the pen over there, I'll end up like twiddling with the cable of my headphones or like the the bottom of my t-shirt or something. And it's something that I find really yeah anchors me into the present and helps me stay in the present and it's not like a it's the only time I really do it is when I'm recording it's not like I do it all the time or I feel I need to do it all the time to be present but I've 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 started to see the correlation between the two because I've noticed like oh it's only when I'm on a call or when I'm recording a podcast that I I tend to find myself fidgeting is when I have the largest amount of my attention focused on one thing, which in this instance is recording, right? And it's such an interesting um, thing for me on how like just something so subtle can have such a a larger impact, you know, unconsciously, consciously, links to the present, it keeps you focused. Like there's so much to it in a way, there's so much depth to it. Absolutely. Um Something else came to mind as you were mentioning this. Now, other than grounding, um, we're using a reason to not be distracted from anything else, right? So we're just, I'm, I'm using the pen, for example, um, as I'm talking. It's a form of emphasizing the importance of the present moment to one of it, which is what you were referring to. But when you think about it as well, um, it's to if it's involving a performance and you can afford to hold a pen, it's, it's a way to maybe potentially releasing tension that's there that may be distracting us, mm -hmm. but it's also a way to ground us in that moment. So you hold that pen, it's allowing you to, to do something else in the presence of what you're doing right now, because you want this performance. If it's a performance, you want it to be very, um, so you want to perform in the best way possible. Another aspect here is we might be fidgeting because we've been taught to do more than one thing at the same time. So there's another aspect here because I'm not used to doing one thing. I may want to do more than one thing because that's what I've been taught. That's what I've seen other people do. That's what I'm living in a world that promotes that. So there's that side as well. Um, this is kind of linked in a way 
we tend to compensate. And I don't know if we talked about this before in learning one of the, one of my favorite lessons that I've extracted from all the experts that I've interviewed. And it's not something that they've shared specifically, but it's something that came to me as an insight. The, the main thing that stops us from learning anything or slows us down is our resistance to the temporary incompetence. And I don't know if we covered that last time, but the reason why this is important is sometimes our resistance is demonstrated as an exaggeration. We exaggerate out of desperation to remain in control, to compensate for our lack of competence in that moment. Give you an example. When I first started playing the guitar, learning how to play the guitar, I was compensating for my incompetence, which I was incompetent because it was my first time, but I was exaggerating to compensate for the incompetence. How? By strumming really hard, tensing my, my hand, holding the pick really strong and really just, and this is what happens when someone's learning something for the first time there. And every teacher of any skill that is physical, that involves an object, whether it's archery or anything, they, or an instrument, they ask you to relax because it's that tension of knowing that you aren't competent yet. And you want to kind of speed up the process or cover it up. So we tend to tense up. And that comes from that resistance to the temporary incompetence. The faster we accept that we are temporarily incompetent, the faster we can solve problems, the faster we can move beyond obstacles, the faster we can learn anything. What keeps us trapped, what allows us to give up very quickly or to move on from something without even trying or to slow us down is the resistance to the temporary incompetence. If I have never encountered this problem in my life, how can I be competent in resolving it? And if I am trying to resist the incompetence, I'm living in denial in that moment. I'm denying that, I, that there is a learning that needs to happen for me to resolve it. And if I'm in denial, I'm detaching from the opportunity to learn. And if I detach from the opportunity to learn how to overcome something, I will not overcome it. And so that was just like a, a side thing that I think was linked in some form to it. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. For, sh for sure, for sure. And it, it reminds me of um, something that I often teach is um, recognize, accept, grow. And it's like what, what, what I got from what you're saying is like recognizing in this, in this instance the incompetence Mm -hmm. right is the first step because if you don't recognize that you're you have the incompetence you're not going to be able to do anything about it because you don't know it's there right you're not recognizing yeah. it once you've recognized it then you can accept the fact that you are incompetent at be it learning the guitar or learning the language or you know wh wherever it is right it doesn't be anything specific but wherever it is you can accept that there's an, a, a level of incompetence there and then once you've accept that that it's there that creates the space for you to grow right because you relax into that acceptance and then the space comes off the back of that to to grow right hence recognize accept grow and it's like it just for me it's a nice reminder of like just an easy way to lean into like something that you're not sure about or you've got resistance around is probably the best way to put it like if you're if you 
if you've put that into action, like I've put that into action in my own life in many different ways of like learning new things or like overcoming like things like depression and anxiety. It's like the first step has to, to be to recognize that that's what's going on and then be okay with the fact that it is going on. And then from that, the space is there through the acceptance to, to grow and, and, and learn and evolve. Absolutely. If you, if, if we remain in resistance, as I mentioned, we are in denial for in denial or trapped resistance creates attention and then rigidity and then paralysis acceptance permits flow if i accept then i can move on and it's not about and the on clubhouse i have this psychology of everything club and i do the psychology uh, of something every week and when i did the psychology of acceptance the, de- the definition of acceptance was really important to explain to people by defining it by what it is not Because a lot of people don't like that term because to them it means certain things. So I just wanted to clarify, acceptance does not mean submission. Mm -hmm. Acceptance does not mean agreement. Acceptance does not mean uh, tolerance. It's not what people link it to. And the idea here is we don't accept, it's not surrender. It's not surrender. If you have a problem and you accept it, that doesn't mean you're giving up. It means you are accepting its existence in order to move on from it. If I want to go to Italy, but I'm in denial that I'm in Spain, how can I ever get to Italy? I got to admit that I'm in Spain so I, so I can go to Italy. I love Spain. I love Italy. But the point is, if I'm in one place and I want to go to the other, I need to accept where I am first. It's not about accepting the persistence of the reality. It's accepting the existence of it. We first accept the existence in order to move on from it. I'm not accepting it to sit with it, to be with it forever. I'm accepting it because that's the stepping stone to moving on from it. And that's where um, many people would disagree on the idea of acceptance or resist it because of that. Just like people don't accept, a lot of people don't like the idea of failure or mistakes. But here's the impossible problem that that creates. If failure is a stepping stone to success and you resist failing, you resist admitting or accepting that you have failed or wanting to avoid failure, and failure is a stepping stone towards success, then what you're doing is you're resisting success indirectly. You're avoiding success by avoiding failure. I want to succeed without failing, even though failing is a central part of success. How does that work? (laughs) How can you ever succeed if you're resisting one of the steps that will get you to success? I want to do this without that. Like I want to leave the room without getting up and walking out. I want you have to get up and walk and you may fumble and you'll get up, but you're moving towards the door, but it's hard to move towards the door if you don't move towards it. It's hard to reach success if you don't utilize and the power of failure and step through it and make mistakes. Avoiding mistakes is avoiding all the lessons that will help you become who you were meant to become on the way to success, on the way. Like in order to succeed, I need to become someone. The mistakes help me become that person to succeed. I want to avoid the very things that are going to help me become the person that gets me to success. That doesn't make sense. But that's what happens in our heads. We create these impossible problems. It can't be solved because you want to avoid a step that is essential for the step to come. 
the, the, for the thing that follows or for what you want. So. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? How we, we can trick ourselves into to believing <laughs> almost anything like that. Right. Like I said, it's such an essential part of, of, you know, success, whatever success means to you or looks like to you, but the failure is as much part, it is as much a part of the success as the successes and the, the result and the outcome that you're looking for. It's if you don't learn along the way through the failings, like the success isn't going to be any closer to you. Like the, the, the failure in a way becomes data, doesn't it? It's like, if you look at it, if you took the meaning out of it, of what it means to have failed at something and whatever, whatever, and you just looked at it as like a piece of data, it's like, oh, that's interesting. What can we learn from the data? Which is like what a lot of scientists and people and you know analysts and stuff like that will do, right? And then they take the learning to get closer to to where they're trying to get to. And it's like, yes. if we had the same approach to success and failure, we'd move a lot closer to, to the success and the outcome that we're after by taking that meaning of, oh, I'm a failure or I'm not worthy and all the stories that we kind of trick, then trick ourselves into kind of like, you know, believing around what it means to, to have failed, right? Yeah, and here's the thing. I think this is an important point. Why do we resist failure? Because the problem is resisting failure, but why do we resist failure? It's the emotional wound linked to failure. Usually people resist failure because they fear the consequences of failing. And it's not necessarily linked to success. It's linked to usually other people. And that usually comes from a wound of someone failing in the past and being mocked or judged or criticized or attacked, abused or neglected in some way or form. And usually pain that comes from others, emotional pain usually comes from others. Traumas occur in the presence of others, whether they were there when something happened, but usually it's inflicted by others when there is a trauma, usually, and it's usually abuse or neglect. That's it. Everything you can imagine comes from those two. And neglect is a form of abuse, but let's separate them. Abuse, abuse, and neglect. Abuse could be verbal, physical, nonverbal, sexual, but that's abuse or neglect. And whenever that happens, if it's not healed, then what ends up happening is you are going to constantly live in a world in fear of the repetition of what happens. When people have a panic attack, they may never have a second one, but they live fearing the return, the reemergence. And it's because that emotional charge linked to that event has not been dissolved. The emotions haven't been dissolved. The nervous system hasn't integrated what happened to move on from it. And so with failure, there was a consequence. And so I fear failing because I don't want what happened to me to be repeated. Um, the top pickpocket in the UK, James Brown, I remember when I was interviewing him, one of the things that were mentioned is he was... And I don't know if we had this conversation in any of our previous podcasts, but I'll mention it because I think it's relevant to failure right now. Um, he was basically saying he was expecting his second child. And he said, I cannot wait for the first time my child falls down. So what do you mean? And he said, well, think about it. When the child falls down for the first time, they don't know how to react. Their reaction is based on your reaction as the parent. If you, if the child falls 
and you basically gasp for air or you're like say something or react in a certain way that creates panic the child panics and starts to cry if the child falls down you say hey jimmy come on get up everything's fine like there's nothing you're responding like nothing happened the child moves on from falling and that made me think is it possible that parents may have accidentally taught their children to fear failing and falling because of the first time they reacted to their children falling. It's just an idea, just a thought that I had. Just wanted to share that just for you to ponder on. Um, but he said, I believe this doesn't change as we get older. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're on stage performing a card trick and the card falls down, then and this, you know, and you're just performing it and the card falls down. The way you react determines the way the audience reacts. If you suddenly lean down and pick up the card and like, oh, you should have seen me practice. You just created a neon sign around that event and now and around that failure. Now everybody would remember. But if you moved on, everyone will forget because you still get to decide how people will react. And I think that's really powerful for people. We have the power to affect how other people react because they may feed off of our reaction of what just happened. If it's not okay for us, it becomes not okay for them in that moment, depending on the context. But I think this is really important. We have the power to affect the reaction of others by how we react to a situation that happened to both of us or to a situation involve, involving us fumbling or making a mistake. We don't need to make a big deal out of it. And we maintain that position, people will move on. And even if they try to make fun of us, if we remain consistent, the person that remains consistent is the person that adjusts the reality in the minds of anyone around them, including themselves. Maintain the consistency of that state. Don't break it. Their state will be broken. Their belief will be broken. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And it's like, if we if we see the the fumble or the mistake or the, you know, the the failing in a way as just part of the process, like using the card trick example, if you've dropped the card during a show with an audience there, if you just react to that, like, like oh, that, it's just something that happens sometimes because you're, you know, shuffling cards quickly, you're bound to drop a card every now and then, unless you're like, you know, an octopus and you have eight, eight tentacles that can hold on to all of them. Like you just, it's going to be part of it, right? So you pick up yeah. a card and you just carry on. Whereas if you make a big deal about it, then all of a sudden that becomes, like you said, it highlights it to everyone else. And I think that ties in really, really well with, with actually one of the questions that's come in, right? Because we okay. were talking a lot in the first part of this um, conversation around emotional wounds and identifying them and understanding them. And one of the questions that's come in from Naisha, <clears throat> excuse me, has said, how do I move on when a wound feels fresh? And I guess on top of that, you know, how do you go about healing an emotional wound? Okay. So emotional healing happens when we create emotional processing, when emotional processing takes place. And that's the thing that keeps wounds trapped when an emotional process didn't take place. Emotional processing involves using the motor system. It involves muscle. 
So there are different things that we can do. Sometimes we can help indirectly heal it to a degree, which is one of the reasons why anything involving muscle is a form of expression. Instead of suppressing how we feel, we're expressing through muscle. People may indirectly express through painting, doing any kind of creative work. People may, and this is general, this has nothing to do with the trauma specifically, they're just drawing. And that helps a bit. It would be more effective if they actually keep that in mind as they draw. They're now truly directly expressing how they feel through by thinking of what happened, and then they draw. They connect with the feelings, and then they draw. That would make it more powerful. However, in terms of expression, breathing is extremely powerful as a motor stimulation, but it depends on how you do it. It depends on whether you're connected to what hurts you while you do it, because a lot of people do the breathing and feel better, but then again, they're doing the breathing to get rid of how they're feeling in that moment, but the memory of that event fades. And, they're, and they think it's gone when, in fact, you know, you just felt better in that moment. But there are ways of connecting breathing to the event, and that helps with the emotional processing. Breathing is an amazing way to do processing, but there are ways of doing that. The second is visualization. When we visualize in a certain way, the way we visualize, and there are certain protocols on how to visualize in a certain way, to basically see the event shifting. The problem usually is when we think back to what happened, we stay true to what happened. We re-traumatize ourselves every single time we think about it. We're constantly thinking about what happened. What people don't realize is the unconscious mind can't tell the difference between what it sees, what you see, and what actually is happening, or what it sees and what you're actually happening. If you, if, if you visualize it in your mind vividly, the mind believes it's happening right now. And if you see it clearly externally, or you see it in your head, the mind can't tell the difference. So if you constantly remember some a trauma that happened to you, and you remember it every day for 30 days, you just had that trauma happen to you again 30 days in a row. It doesn't get better. This is not systematic desensitization. This is re-traumatization. There's a big difference, but there are ways of connecting to it in a way to minimize the emotional impact of that trauma. And that helps the processing. And it usually boils down to behavior. It boils down to muscle motor stimulation. So visualization is the only exception to that because you can start to see things differently. It's not about bending and lying about what happened. It's about shifting because when you see it happening right now, it's not actually happening right now, but the mind can't tell the difference. But if you shift what's happening right now, when you're remembering what happened then, it starts to change the outcome of what happens now, which means the future starts to change. There are ways of doing it specifically, but I just wanted to highlight visualization separately. Um, the reason, for example, with something like NLP, uh, in NLP, let's say with submodalities, they change the picture linking you to the event, shrinking it, um, playing with it, making it an old picture, putting it, shrinking it into like a TV screen, changing the colors. It's a very powerful tool. The issue here is it doesn't take away the emotional wound. It doesn't release the emotional charge linked to the event. 
it just takes away the picture that connects us to the event. So we feel better thinking that we've moved on. And somehow, because that emotional charge is still there, it may emerge in some way or form. But it is a powerful tool. The key here is to use that after releasing the emotional charge, you can change the picture manually that way. However, if you release the emotional charge, you dissolve the emotions linked to the event, that picture may actually change all by itself because there's no reason for it to exist because that picture was your unconscious mind bringing to your attention something that connects you to the memory that you still haven't resolved wounds around. That's the thing. So, which brings me to the another thing, which is behavioral change. When you behave differently in the same context of something that happened in the past, that's a, that's a shift in motor stimulation. And that creates resolution. That is a form of processing in and of itself, standing up to a bully, for example. That's a change in behavior, and that allows you to move on. So you're, you're changing your behavior to the stimulus that wounded you, for example. And again, I'm just giving you like an overview about this. The final one, which is the most important one, is emotional expression. I'm trying to remember the name of the professor at UCLA that did it, um, that did research on this. And they found that when you express how you feel, especially for anger specifically, but I don't think they, I'm sure I'm going to reach out to them. I'm sure they've covered more now, but when you express how you feel about anger, expressing it, I can feel the emotion of anger. I believe was the sentence that was used could be wrong, but I think that was it, which is not necessarily the ideal way of phrasing it, but nevertheless, you are basically expressing anger verbally. You're verbalizing it or writing it down. Both have benefits, by the way, different reasons, but they both do the same thing because they're both muscle. You are vocalizing using your muscles. That's motor stimulation. That's behavioral change. The the trauma happens. You are expressing how you feel about it. That is a change in behavior in and of itself and labeling the emotions to make it tangible. The second is writing it down. Again, you're labeling it and it's motor. It's using your hands to write it, right? So that's, that's a shift. They found that by doing that over and over and over, the amygdala activity dropped. The threat detector part of the brain dropped in activity and the right prefrontal cortex, uh, the, the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex increased in activity in the brain. And that is the part of the brain responsible for emotional processing. That's how healing happens. That's, that's a simple way to do it. Now, obviously, there are ways of doing it you know, in a very intense way, but there are very effective ways of doing it. It may require guidance one-on-one. Uh, there are things that people can do on their own. So to get back to, your, to the question that was mentioned, these are different things that can be done. But one simple thing that people can do is basically, it's a simple emotional expression exercise. Think of it as emotional journaling, if you want. Think of the thing that you keep thinking about that bothers you. Just connect to it and ask yourself, when I think about, and just write that down, when I think about blank, I can feel blank. And you keep repeating that final sentence over and over and over and over and over and over. So for example, when I think about the time when that person said that to me or did that to me, I can feel betrayed. I can feel resentment. I can feel angry. I can feel hateful. It doesn't matter. No one's there to listen. No one's there to judge. Write it down for yourself. Yes, you don't want people to know that you feel hate, but guess what? It's just a feeling. You're not acting upon it. And the idea is to be honest about how you feel. 
And a lot of times we don't give ourselves permission to be honest with ourselves about certain things. I don't want to say out loud that I'm ashamed of that. Well, guess what? If you don't say that, it stays trapped. Thoughts, when we, when we express our thoughts, we give them power. And certain negative thoughts shouldn't be even verbalized or written. Emotions, when we express them, we release them. We take away the power. The power of emotions lies in our, in our, in our decision to suppress them. And the power of thoughts rely on our decision to release them because we're not releasing them. We're feeding, we're, we're strengthening them. So that's the difference when it comes to expressing thoughts versus expressing emotions. And a couple of points here. When you say, I, when I think about blank, I can feel blank. It's important to keep saying or keep writing the same sentence over and over and over. Because when you say, I can feel blank, I can feel resentment, anger, judgment, frustration, you're detaching from the experience because you're just saying the emotion. You're not owning the emotion by adding I and the possibility with can and then the verb feel to affect your relationship with the emotion. It's by design. It's really important to own how you feel by expressing it out loud fully. We're reteaching ourselves to accept how we feel instead of resisting it. Resistance, we go back to resistance. This is a form of accepting how you feel to move on from it. And you keep doing it over and over and over and over until there's nothing else to express in that moment. One thing to clarify here, I started with, I feel betrayed. A lot of people would say betrayed is not an emotion. You're right, it's an experience, but you are feeling it. And there is an emotional charge there. And it's a summary in your head that you felt the need to verbalize that actually covers a cluster of emotions within it as well. And you may still tackle that those emotions later on as you continue. But the idea is to maintain that flow. The idea is not to interrupt yourself. It is therapeutic to say, I feel, or I can feel betrayed because that's your truth. The real problem we have is we don't suppress. We, we live in a world that taught us to, maybe not the world, but you know what I mean, to suppress the truth about how we feel. And sometimes when we learn to express how we feel, that, you know, that right to express how we feel turns into attacks on other people and judgment and blame and accusation. There is a middle ground here. You don't have to express how you feel by attacking someone else. In fact, in a conversation saying you made me feel isn't actually true. That person didn't make you feel anything. That person said something that triggered you because you had a wound that was open and they accidentally poked it. And if you cut them out of your life, that's not going to change anything. Someone else will come along to press up, to poke that wound again, not because they mean to, but because that wound is still open. And thanks to the person that triggered you, you now are aware of the existence of a wound that you can explore to heal, to close that wound. And guess what? If it's closed, you no longer have to be worried about tri being triggered because, and we had this conversation last, uh, last time. Mm -hmm. So I hope this helps as an exercise, as an answer, something simple that people can do that can help because it will release the emotion, it will help release the emotional charge and lower its intensity by expressing it, how we feel, the truth about how we feel. Three things that are really important for us to focus on, because these are the three kind of links or causes in a way of the emotional suppression that we feel saying no, saying yes when we actually want to say no, 
that needs to change. Um, creating, communicating, and enforcing our boundaries, that needs to change. And then the third thing is expressing the truth about how we feel. That needs to change. We need to be unapologetically expressive about how we feel as long as we're not harming other people. The right to express is not a license to abuse. Saying you made me feel isn't true. What is true is when I remember what you said back then when we had that conversation, when I, th- when I think about that, I can feel this. When I remember that, you know, when I, when I remember what you said, I feel this. Am I blaming the other person? No. Am I pointing fingers? No. I'm just basically saying, when I remember what you said, I feel this. It has nothing to do with you. I'm just pointing out that association. It's not on you. You are not responsible for this. This is my responsibility. Now, this is not about bl- uh, victim blaming. I want to be very clear here. This is not about victim blaming. This is not about it being your fault. But what I am saying is we can remove triggers. This is not about abuse or rape or anything. This has nothing to do with that. I'm talking about traumas or or triggers from other people that are verbally, let's say, or even in any way or form. We have work that we can do to free ourselves from what has been holding us back. So we're no longer triggered from these actions or words from other people. But that doesn't mean that we cannot stand up against people. In fact, it becomes a lot easier when the fear of the consequence of standing up goes away because we have been working and doing emotional work on ourselves. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I get from from all of that is that it's like through the suppression of certain emotions or feelings, right? Yeah. We we create a meaning around that feeling and that meaning that we create acts as the trigger. So if someone says something to us that makes us feel that, that particular feeling, the meaning that we've created around what that feeling means to us is that then becomes the trigger for, you know, the, the, the pain or the suffering that we feel as a response to that. And what I kind of get is that, if we, and I'm just exploring this, like in my own mind, if we change the relationship we have to the meaning of the feeling, that makes sense, <laughs> then it, it releases, well, the trigger doesn't exist as much anymore and, and therefore allows the wounds to, to start to close. And yeah, through, through, through doing that, you know, and not through doing that, but one of the things that helps with that is the expression of the feeling like you said, you know, using that sentence of, um, when this happens or when I think of, or when I remember this, I can feel, you know, blank. That expression allows us to get more comfortable with the feeling that we, that we're kind of suppressing and therefore the becoming more accepting of that being a feeling that we have, you know, linking back to what we were saying at the very start, creates space within us to then, heal the wounds that exist. Does that make, does it make sense? Yes. Um, I love the word relationship. I love that you mentioned that because relationship is key here. Um, it's not as much changing the meaning linked to the feelings or the emotions. It's changing our relationship to the event by releasing the emotions that meaning and interpretation is coming because of that emotional charge. Think mm-hmm. of it as we're, we're, the meaning is coming because there's a thorn in the soles of our feet. 
So we're because of that, we're living in threat. We're still in pain. And so we see the world through that. The moment we remove the thorn, everything changes. If, if I got you to drink like seven liters of water and waited for like seven hours or eight hours, and then I asked you to sit down and just be patient and calm and relaxed and listen to your guest for an hour versus not having that issue, completely released, no tension stored or suppressed, and you could just easily spend that hour. Which one would you enjoy more? Which one would you feel more flexible and comfortable and relaxed? Which one would you be more patient and accepting? And which one are you going to be more resistant to? Be the second one, wouldn't it? Would you be... would exactly because because you're there, you're not living in tension, yeah. you're not living in pain, you're not living in fear, you're not living in any of that because you remove the thorn. It's all about removing the thorn, and suddenly we see the world differently. The meaning changes, the interpretation changes, everything changes. It starts by changing our relationship to the emotions themselves, and then to the event through releasing the emotions. If I have a hard time accepting that I feel fear, I'm not going to let go of it. I'm not going to release it. We cannot release what we don't own and we cannot own what we do not accept. Full stop. And with emotions, and this is an important thing for the exercise, the exercise is for you to think back of something that bothers you. If something bothers you right now that just happened, you could do the same exercise, but just say, I feel blank and keep going right now. You'd be like, I can't believe they did this. They just said that like, stop. What are you feeling right now that you'd rather not feel? Just focus on that. Because here's the thing, why you feel doesn't matter. How you feel is everything. People focus on the why and on the analysis and and hoping to, to control what happened to make sure it doesn't happen. That doesn't change the fact that you still have an emotion that needs to be released or a cluster of emotions. You still have that thorn in the sole of your feet and the sole of your foot. And you could try to cover the wound We're trying to basically trigger management rather than emotional processing by covering the wound and trying to find a way to protect people, protect the wound from others. So we prevent them from poking the open wound. How about closing the wound so you don't even need to manage it anymore? How about removing that thorn so it becomes a lot easier for you to communicate with others? And so it becomes a lot easier to resolve conflict. And that's the key here. So when someone feels something, side recommendation as an exercise is to do the emotional expression by just focusing on how you're feeling right now. I feel whatever. I feel resentful. I feel frustrated. I feel enraged. I feel furious. I feel ashamed. I feel sad. Even if it doesn't make sense, if you feel like saying it, it was the truth. And sometimes you will reach a point where you're going to say something, you're going to share a feeling that doesn't make sense in that moment until you say it. Like, oh my God, I actually feel ashamed of this. But it's because you were peeling that onion. You were expressing, expressing. You weren't able to get to that because most people don't even go through this process. And most people may say the first thing, I feel this, and that's it. Just one emotion. Uh Uh-uh. That's the lid. I promise you there's so much more. And it's a beautiful exercise to help us release. Now, one thing I would say for both, whether it's to connect to something in the past, whether you want to do this verbally or writing, whether it's to connect to something in the past or express how you feel in the moment, when you are done, do five to seven exaggerated breaths. Like that. Five to seven times, maybe even 10. 
and stop. What you just did is you supported the emotional integration and you initiated the processing through the expression and you basically amplified it in that moment. And now you stop and give it some time. You can do this as many times as you want for as many topics, for as many people, for as many events, for as many activities. It has a lot of different um, very, you know, applications. I explore a lot of that on, on Clubhouse when people keep asking because it's a huge topic, but it's something that is hugely, massively neglected. Um, and I think a good metaphor to clarify here is when people tell you, especially in the spiritual industry of, you know, just telling you to sit with your emotions or to stay with your emotions. The thing about that is it's very vague and it's very confusing. What does it mean for me to sit with my emotions? I'm feeling it, allowing yourself to feel it. Yes. But what does that even mean? And if you're staying with how you feel rather than wanting to move on from it, you're feeling it, which is good, but it's, it's kind of like allowing the bubbles of the wounds you have to kind of rise to the surface and the resolution, the true resolution comes from the popping at the top. But what ends up happening is you're feeling everything is getting more intense and it arrives at the top and you don't allow it to pop. So it basically goes back down again and you go through the same thing over and over thinking that you've released, but you haven't truly released because you haven't allowed that popping to take place. Mm -hmm. And the key here is what you do when the feelings emerge. And a simple thing to be done, and there's a lot to it, but this is a simplistic thing that a lot of people can use right now around the world. And it would, it would be very helpful. And anyone that's listening can listen, can try it and see what happens and notice the shift in your body, physical sensations, emotions. There may be a bit of fluctuation that can happen for a day or two or three, but guess what? There's a movement. There's a change that's happening. You are doing something to what was buried within you for such a long time that you have not been taught to do and you've never done before. And it's going to create a shift in the nervous system that would allow you to be free or at least to minimize the intensity because some of the wounds may require actual one-on-one -on -one work. But nevertheless, whatever you use this for, most likely if it's something that bothers you, if it's something that hurts, it's a powerful tool to lower the intensity. And it's not temporarily lowering it. You're gradually chipping away at that block that was there. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? I think a lot, a lot of people tend to, and I've experienced this. Like you want, you want to like heal it straight away. You want to just like be done with it and it's healed, right? But that's it's not how it works. It's, you don't, you don't cut your arm and then like a minute later it's completely healed. There's like a there's a certain time period depending on how deep the wound is, how big it is, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that it will take for it to, to, to heal in its own time. And if you're not willing to be, be patient with that, then every time I look at my arm and I still see the cut, I'm gonna, there's going to be a frustration around it, which then is going to make me feel a certain way about it even more. Right. And I feel like a lot of people are looking for a kind of quick fix. Like what's, what do I need to do to, to fix it now? And often the answer is like, there isn't anything to do to fix it now, but over time, if you're, you know, taking on board a lot of the things that, that you've, you've shared and the things that have been discussed previously with us over time, you, like you said, you chip away at that, 
at that wound and it, it creates the space for, or you chip away at the, the, the feeling you have about the wound, shall we say, and that creates the space and the environment for it to heal in its, in its own kind of capacity, if that makes sense. Um, and it kind of links on to, to, to the second question I actually wanted to bring up, which has come in from, um, Fox 18. I don't know what real name is. That was the Instagram name, obviously. Although yeah. Fox 18 was your real name. It's a cool name. <laughs> it sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. Um, it's like they've asked, how do I know that I'm on the right path with just in life in general? Like, how do I know that my, the path I'm on is, is, is right. That's an interesting question. It's a very general question, but I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll see what comes up. So how to know that I'm on the right path? I would imagine how to know that I'm on the right path for me mm-hmm. as a person. Yes. And it's, it's, it starts with being honest. So one thing that ties everything that we kind of mentioned here is acceptance is a powerful tool. And this is, you know, emotional expression or expression in general is a, is a demonstration of acceptance that you have something that you want to release or that there is a situation that needs resolving. The second thing is it allows you to become more aware of what's happening. The third is authenticity. If you are not creating an, if, of being authentic, and that comes from wounds, in and of itself, that can create emotional wounds. It can create an emotional um, block in a way, but it comes from that. Our behavior in life is important to be, to not be fear-based. If I were to make a suggestion, whatever decision you make, make sure it's not fear-based. If it's fear-based, it's most likely not the right path for you. So just to get back to that, as long as you are choosing something authentically, as long as you are honest with yourself that this is what you want and you're trusting your intuition and it feels right and it's not fear-based, then it's most likely the right path for you. Now, it's important to identify that you're doing this because of, for the right reason, in the right way. Just like the idea of going to a destination, moving towards a destination is not enough. It needs to be for the right reason. It needs to be at the right time. It needs to be in the right way, in the right state. If you want to talk to someone, same thing. The right time, the right way, the right state, for the right reason, the right intention. And intention is, clear, is, is, is very, very important because when you arrive at a destination, a lot of people have goals and they arrive at the destination and they're not fulfilled. And they're like, is that what it was? There are many reasons why that was the case. And it may not be that it wasn't the right path for you. Just because you're not fulfilled does not mean that it wasn't the right path. It may mean that you've arrived at the destination you wanted but you arrived for the reasons, for the wrong reason. Succeeding to achieve a, um, a level uh, of success in some way or form, to prove people wrong is not the right reason to do it because you did it for the wrong reason. I know that people can use that for fuel, but if you don't feel fulfilled, one of the reasons why that may be the case is because you have decided to arrive at a destination through moving towards it. And the reason behind that, the fuel behind that is to prove other people wrong. 
not to tap into the possibilities of what you can create for the world, what you can accomplish for yourself and allow yourself, allow your skills, your innate skills, or explore what you are capable of doing. Whatever the reason is, if it's not the right reason, you may not be fulfilled. And that's one of many reasons why someone would not be fulfilled when they arrive. So I would say honesty, be authentic, be honest with yourself is, you know, and trust your gut. Does it feel right? And is it fear-based? Because if it's fear-based, it's not the right path. It may be the right path, but remove the fear first. And that emotional exercise can help you. Actually, if you have an opportunity in front of you, but you're kind of hesitant in whether to do it or not, do that exercise. When I think about pursuing this goal, I can feel and write down all the things that you, the feelings that the unwanted feeling, the feelings that you'd rather not feel and allow them to emerge on paper or verbally on paper has a benefit that you have a list unless you want to record what you're saying verbally, but you have a list of all the emotions that are linked to that are stopping you from really committing to something that's powerful and that's useful. So I hope that kind of answers the question. Yeah, it does. And, and I think that that idea of right, like not coming from or making the decision out of a place of fear, right. And doing it for the kind of correct intention for you. And this is obviously going to be very individual to everyone for many reasons. But then on the flip side, I kind of want to play devil advocate a little bit, right. And say that, how do you know that you're on the right path? I would almost say, well, you're always on the right path because there is only one path, right? We, we, we tend to think that there's like other paths that we can, you know, that are running parallel to the path we're on that we can, we can choose to, to, to go on to anyway. Right. But kind of relating to what we were saying earlier, if you see the things that are happening on your path, on your journey of life, and there's certain things that make you feel a type of way or you you can recognize that you've done out of a place of fear again that just becomes data for you to look at and say oh why did i make that decision and you can use that data in a way to learn from and inform better decisions for you in the future further down your path when when those decisions come along and i think like in my own journey that's been really helpful because you know, when I was in a really tough place, I, I used to think there was, surely there's another path for me that I can take. And surely there's a, a different, you know, it's like if you're, if you're, if you're on a, like stuck in traffic, right. You're always thinking like, oh, there's another road that I can probably get to, which is going to get me around the traffic. And, you know, if I can divert this way, or if I turn back, I can, you know, go a longer way, but we'll avoid being in the standstill traffic. Like there are options available to us on a, on a roadmap, right. But on, on a map of life, the only path that is is we're on is the one that we're on and the one that's ahead of us. And by by thinking sometimes otherwise, it causes more frustration around where you're currently at. But if you take that kind of level of again meaning out of it and just look at the 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 the, the places along the path and 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 the decisions that you make and the things that occur along that path as data that you can learn from you can create something a lot more, uh, I, don't, I don't want to use the word positive, but you know what I mean? You can, you can create a more uh, beneficial, you know, 
learning-based experience for yourself, which will allow you to continue on the path that you're on in a kind of, yeah, I guess more positive way. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just, I just took a few notes as you were talking, you were just kind of stimulating different. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We're on a path. And the thing is something that would really be valuable for people is to realize that in a way change equals progression, whatever the change is, there's progress in somewhere form because it's either learning or it's actually moving. You're, you're either moving closer uh, because you've done something properly or you're not moving closer, but it's still progress because you know what you need to change. You need to know what I see but change equals progress in general. And the idea of, that's really important, just because you are struggling where you are doesn't mean you're not on the right path. A, the presence of struggles and obstacles and, and challenge doesn't mean that you're not on the right path. But if you choose to be accepting of the situation, of where you are and releasing the emotional charge linked to that event or linked to that activity, then it's no longer fear-based. You're no longer resistant to the struggle. You're no longer resistant to the temporary incompetence of resolving what is in front of you. Now you have the opportunity of really seeing whether it's the right path or not, but people choose whether it's the right path or not based on um, how they're feeling in that moment. When in fact you're not, it has nothing to do what you're feeling has nothing to do with the struggle that you're going through or that obstacle. It's how you're feeling and what you've been carrying with you until this moment is things that you haven't resolved. And this happens to be another example of something that brought you or made you become aware of a wound that you've had that you haven't healed. And your resistance to this experience is because of that existing wound that you never resolved. So it every change is progress. And it's very important for anyone listening just because you're struggling in this situation, whatever the situation is, doesn't mean that it's not the right path. If you want to assess whether it's the right path or not, trust your intuition after eliminating the fear aspect. And if you're highly emotional, dropping that because when emotions go down, intellect goes up and it becomes a lot easier for you to, to basically um, you know, evaluate the situation. Another thing is the idea of whatever's coming your way in life is going to be teaching you something, but it's the way we relate to the experiences in our lives. So people say life is a performance and the value of that is, or the benefit of that statement is that it's a performance. It's happening once. It's not going to happen again. Just seize the moment. Don't think that you're going to have another chance later. Seize the moment. And I get that, but I look at life as a rehearsal Life is a rehearsal, which means it's okay to make mistakes in it. If it's a rehearsal, you can make as many mistakes as possible because we haven't yet arrived at the performance. So you're constantly rehearsing, you're constantly learning, you're constantly going through it in that way. If you look at life as a rehearsal, it's okay to make mistakes. If you look at your life as an improv session, there are no mistakes. Mm. And that takes it to another level. If you, yeah. So, so it really depends on, on how you want to look at it. Um, so yeah, there's, these are a couple of points that kind of came out as you were talking. Mm. Oh, I love that final point about the improv session. And, and, and to be honest, I feel like that's how we should look at life. We should look at it as an improv session, right? Because then everything becomes a lot lighter, a lot freer. There's a lot more room to express and create and, you know, all, all of these things. Whereas if we, if we've got a kind of 
resistance around change or things going wrong, then you can see how the experience that we have doesn't feel as free or as light. Um, but we've, I've just got an eye on the time and I want to, I want to get one final question in, um, which has come in from Re. And Re has asked, um, how can I stop feeling so lonely in my life? And obviously we don't know what Re's situation is asking that, but as a, as a general, um, a question what what would you would you say to that how can i stop feeling lonely yeah or or, yeah like the the loneliness aspect i guess yeah there are a lot of people that feel lonely even though they're around other people which makes it even more complicated so just saying spend time with people may not be the answer and this ties into something i think really that is really important We also, through social media, have learned to focus on other people. It's other people focused. And every connection is a disconnection. And if we're constantly focusing on other people, we're no longer focusing on ourselves. And if we're not focusing on ourselves, we're not nourishing ourselves. We are neglecting ourselves. We are abandoning ourselves. And a lot of the clubhouse sessions that I do, whatever the topic is about the psychology of acceptance or abundance or um, comparison or any or trust, I usually mention the element of self. It's hard to trust others if we don't trust ourselves. It's hard to accept others if we don't accept ourselves. So it's very important for us to learn to be comfortable being on our own. And maybe the loneliness is stemmed from constantly focusing on pleasing other people and focusing on spending time with others that we've forgotten how to spend time or we may have never had the opportunity, depending on the generation, to spend time with ourselves. Because even if when when we are alone, we're on our phones, watching other people talk to us, either through FaceTime or actually watching people on YouTube talking to the camera. So we believe they're talking to us. But the point is we're spending time with other people. What if we just switch the phone off and be alone? Just be alone in that moment, that alone time. For people that are used to it, it's an addiction. There's going to be a withdrawal period. There's going to be resistance because that experience provides dopamine. And now we're depriving ourselves of dopamine. But there are other ways of feeling of allowing dopamine to emerge that doesn't involve other people. But we've been learned, we've been taught to believe that the only way to have a dopamine spike is by connecting with other people, which is not the case. There's so many things that increase dopamine. So many things. If you sleep before by 10 p.m., you increase dopamine. A lot of people sleep beyond 11. And so there's a punishing part in the brain that prevents production of dopamine. For example... Sunlight increases dopamine, especially early in the morning, but even throughout the day. And if there's a mirror, if there's a glass window separating you, it will affect dopamine levels. But if you go out, you would. And that's one of the reasons why nature is so powerful. It also increases dopamine. So we can talk about dopamine in and of itself because that's a huge topic, but you don't need people for dopamine. And that doesn't mean that connecting with others isn't valuable. But if connecting with others is your focus. Focus equals importance and sustained focus equals dependence. Who would you rather depend on, others or yourself? Well, it'd be yourself, right? Yes. How can you depend on yourself if you're not focusing on yourself, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not focusing? I'm not saying that's the case, but 
the more we focus on ourselves, the less we need other people. And there's nothing wrong with seeking help or asking for people to support us in certain things because you can't do things on your own. You can't succeed in life without help, help of other people. But as long as you're self-reliant and self-dependent, you feel resourceful, you can still have the option of help of, of reaching out for help. As long as the focus, the sustained focus is on self, not others. We live in a world again, I just keep saying this because there are a lot of things that we've been taught in this world to focus on others and neglect ourselves. Because if we focus on ourselves, we're going to be considered arrogant or selfish or, but that's not the case. We need to focus on ourselves because I was thinking of this. So do we focus on others or ourselves? Can we focus on both? And I was playing with this. The formula for me is focus on yourself first and focus on yourself more. But that doesn't mean don't stop focusing on other people because you cannot fill other people with an empty cup. You can't fill others with an empty cup. And the selflessness is self-abandonment. You are abandoning yourself. You are neglecting yourself. What that does is it lowers your self-esteem because what it means is you're not good enough or valuable enough or enough to focus on yourself on your own. You need to focus on other people to seek their approval and validation to feel better about yourself by the reaction of your support to others. And we need both. The ratio that I found is self first, self more, and focus on others then rather than neglect self and then focus on others. Because if you nourish yourself properly, when you focus on others, you're not disconnecting from yourself in that moment because you've nourished yourself enough. It's important to learn to focus on self. And that's one of the ways to minimize the sense of loneliness. Obviously going out, connecting with people, the right people, because connecting with people can prolong our life by expend, extending the telomeres in our DNA, it just allows us to live longer and it's healthy and it combats depression, but it needs to be the right people. So be selective with the people you meet, spend time with others, as long as you spend more time with yourself and learn to get comfortable mm -hmm. with that. And one simple thing that you can do is what we were just talking about. It's time with self when we start to be honest with ourselves and express how we feel. That's another benefit to doing this. It's a form of self-care. So I hope that answers that question. Yeah. And again, man, I, I really agree with that. And, you know, I've seen drastic change in my own life just by putting more, more focus on learning to um, love myself and focus my, on myself more. And by doing that, it's allowed me to show up more powerfully with the people that I choose to spend time with. Right. And I think that something that's really interesting in there is like, if you're, if you're continually focused on the others like you said then you don't really have an understanding of the right kind of people for you because you're you're you're, you're spending time with others from a kind of insecure fear-based place of like i must spend time with others to feel less lonely right and i was experiencing that in my own life that like i was spending time with people just for the sake of spending time with people but not really understanding whether they were the right kind of people that i would choose to spend time with right but when i started to do to do the work as as people say right on myself and and spend more time and focus on myself it allowed me to have a better understanding of me and my needs and therefore allowed me to identify easier or from from a 
a less insecure place, a more abundant place of who the people are that I choose to spend time with and why. And that just coming from that place and, and creating that shift created a huge shift in my relationships, especially with like friends and the people that I was spending the most time with, but also like romantically, like, you know, my girlfriend that I'm with now, like I'm with her because I really am choosing to be with her. I'm not with her because I'm like, oh, if, I, if I'm not with someone, then like it's a, I'm in a bad place. And like, it's not this insecure thing. It's like, no, I'm really choosing to be with her because we really get on well and we spend so much good time together and we have such a laugh together. Like that's the kind of person I want in my life, be it romantically or not. But but without being able to wind the clock back and say, without doing that, that focus and, 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 and that kind of learning to understand the relationship and, and better the relationship with myself through spending time with myself and spending time doing the things that I enjoy when no one's watching and no one else is there. I wouldn't have got to that place of being able to identify like who are the people that I'm choosing to spend my time with for the, for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. And the way to do that is to take the time to do that. Mm. If we're taught to constantly live in urgency and rush and constantly be in this overstimulation lifestyle, if we don't choose to detach, to allow that need, that fear to, to decline, how can we ever be selective? It's hard to be selective when we're desperate and yes. we're feeding the desperation through a lack of detachment. Yes, a hundred percent. And do you know what? I'd even say if you've if you've got into this podcast and you're here and you're listening to this, you're already making the right choices for you, right? Because you're you're trying to understand this stuff better for yourself, right? That's already a good indication that you are willing to identify what those things are that 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 can change so that you can have those better relationships or that better relationship with yourself as a as a as a foundation and therefore better relationships with other people and therefore through that not feeling a, an intense feeling of loneliness because I felt that at the time I felt like even though I was constantly surrounded by people through work and my social circles and hobbies and stuff I felt incredibly alone within that because I was doing all of those things and going into them from a really like insecure place and therefore I was it was like a desperation thing like you said you're coming at it from a place of desperation and when you're coming at it from that place, you're not making the the best decisions for you, right? The decisions aren't made with your best interest at heart. They're made out of a sense of like, well, if I don't make this decision, then something bad, like a fear-based place, that's something bad's going to happen to me, right? That's kind of what we think, like from a very primal perspective. But through understanding that for myself and bettering that relationship with myself, it's allowed me to, like I say, identify the things that I like to do in my own time, which I I will continue to do when no one's watching, but also through that, it helped me identify who are the other people who have similar interests or, you know, are on a similar wave as me that I can choose to spend time with, you know? And it's, it's just, it's created such a shift for me when it comes to relationships, hugely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's all we have time for today. Um, I hope that um, that's been very helpful for anyone who's been listening and for, for those who asked the questions as well, thank you. And if there's any that we didn't get around to answering, I'll, I will try my best to answer them via Instagram as well, um, just to, to make sure that they don't go unanswered. 
Um, but Sam, as always, thank you so much for the time. It's always always a pleasure, and um, it never fails to um, surprise me how far and how deep these conversations can go. So um, I appreciate the time and, and the the conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Again, uh, it's always a privilege to have this conversation with you. And I love how we start off not knowing where it's going to end. Yeah. And somehow it ends in a beautiful way every single time. And that sounds a lot like life to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you, where's the best place for people to, to, to find you online if you want to shout out some of the things that you're up to and, and your clubhouse sessions as well, if you want to shout those out? Yeah, the on Clubhouse, Sam Kurashi, S-A-M-Q-U-R-A-S-H-I. And the club itself is Psychology of Everything. And it's usually every Saturday. On Instagram, it's Sam Karashi again. That's that's the, the username. And on Patreon, if people want a deeper dive, um, it's again Sam Karashi on Patreon. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I would love to know what you got from it. To do so, hit me up on Instagram or TikTok at I am Alex Manzi. And let me know what is the one biggest learning or takeaway that you're going to take from this episode today. And if you know someone who you think would really benefit from hearing this episode, then be sure to send it to them, to send them a screenshot, a link, because it's really important that we continue to spread the positive vibes and messages of episodes like this. I started this podcast to help inspire a positive change, and you can also be a part of that by sharing this episode with someone you know today. I want to thank Ryan Nile from Pure Creation Media for editing this episode, and to Hobgoblin for providing the sick music. And as ever, I want to thank you for spending time with me today and listening to this episode, and I will see you for the next one.